philosophy has become, I think, too much of an academic discipline. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, the state of public philosophy. Less people, dramatically less people than, let's say, in the 19th century among the philosophers are aware, I would say, that the ultimate thing would be to get in touch with an audience that is not just academic, that's not just your students. What is the role of the public intellectual in the 21st century? Has philosophy become elite and irrelevant? What I think is important is to not only be rational, but sometimes come up with weird proposals that get discussions going. Out of the ivory tower and onto the streets. Basically, yes, I want to reach a larger audience with what I'm writing and less footnotes. Our guest is Hans Gumbrecht, author of Reading Moods, The Different Ontology of Literature. I also try to make some money with it, which is always a good criterion whether you reach somebody or not. The State of Public Philosophy, coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Mars Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates at Stanford University's Philosopher's Corner. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today is the state of public philosophy. Well, Philosophy Talk is a public philosophy radio program. We're a philosophy program on public radio. We're devoted to public philosophy. We're devoted to making public philosophy better. But I suppose at some point we ought to ask, within all that, what is it we're trying to do? Well, (laughs) our first aim, John, is to encourage the public, our listeners and our participants in our blog, our Facebook friends to actually get off their doves and do some philosophy themselves, to, to engage in this ongoing activity of philosophy. I mean, I, we think that because we think philosophy's fun, but also because if more people do philosophy, I think the world will be a better place. Our public discussion and debates and decisions will be better for everybody doing philosophy. So we'll have happier people living in a better world if they just will listen to philosophy talk. <laughs> now, a, a second thing we try to do is to acquaint people with what influential <coughs> philosophers of the past and the present have been worried and yeah, thought about. That's true, that's true, but that really, that's a secondary aim. Well, why are we interested in getting people to think about what the great philosophers have talked about and what the great philosophers are thinking about because we think our audience should and may want to think about the same things in the same kind of deep philosophical way. Okay, now we've cleared up what it is we're all about. Now, what is it that people are worried about? What is it that we're worried about when they worry about the state of public philosophy? Well, some people worry, and I actually I worry about this myself, that that modern-day philosophers, especially in America, don't have the same impact on, on public life that philosophers once had, and that philosophers still do have, at least in, in some countries, especially in places like Europe. Well, our, our experience certainly suggests that, some of our experience. Lots of public radio stations and their program directors are quite amazed, startled, blown over, can't believe it when we say, oh, we've got a philosophy program that we think deserves a spot on your public radio station. They're very skeptical that their listening public would be interested. It just philosophy doesn't seem like the sort of thing that the public really wants to hear about to these people. 
Right, you know, so right, there, there is this skepticism. You want to do what on the radio? You want to do philosophy on the radio? But, you know, we've done this for a while now, and our, part of our experience points in a completely opposite direction from that skepticism. I mean, people, uh, some people, many people, are very interested in the topics we talk about, the issue, the ideas, the, the great dead philosophers. You know, <laughs> just, 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 just in my own lifetime, I think I've seen an increase actually, in the impact of people in our profession in public life. I think of some of our past guests, Daniel Dennett, Martha Nussbaum, Anthony Appia. I mean, they're all excellent philosophers. They have great admiration for them all. They, all, they write widely read books. They, they, they appear frequently, not just on this program, but they're all over the radio dial and even sometimes on TV and op-ed pages. So there is an increase in some circles. Well, I think you're right about that. And, and I think in my somewhat longer lifetime, I've seen a similar trend. But, you know, it's not just that philosophy over the period I've been observing it has more impact in the wider public. I think it also has more impact than what you might call a narrower philosophy public. That is, our colleagues in other disciplines and related disciplines, I think, take philosophers more seriously than they did when I got started in the 60s. The ideas of thinkers like John Rawls and Michael Bratton, for example, are very influential, taught in courses in law schools. Well, that's true, and if you think of areas that you and I both overlap with AI, cognitive science, computer science, philosophy has had a not inconsiderable influence in the development of those disciplines. But the one place that we, in the sense of American analytical philosophers like you and I, don't seem to have had much of an impact, not as much as one would expect, is in the humanities. Oh, that's true. I, I think you're understating it. I think this, like, there's been this great divide between philosophy and the other humanities, especially if you think of, uh, we haven't proven to be very inspiring at all to our comrades in literature, especially comparative literature and cultural anthropology and places like that. We're kind of at odds with those folks. European thinkers like Derrida seem to have been of more interest to people in literature and even in history. In a wider sense, all humanists are really involved in the philosophical enterprise. So this seems surprising and rather sad. I agree with you. It is rather sad. Our, now, our guest today is someone who feels this lack of impact intensely. That would be Hans Gumbrecht from the Comparative Literature Department at Stanford, which, by the way, was also home of our dear and late colleague Richard Rorty in the last part of his life. Gumbrecht is a philosopher, and he's also a public intellectual. Like Rorty, he's both been influenced by, and at the same time, I think, deeply skeptical about certain aspects of the prevailing approach to philosophy in America, that is, analytical philosophy, as we call it. So I'm very much looking forward to thinking through these issues with SEP, as everyone calls him. And we we'll want our live audience here, our deeply philosophical, public-minded audience here at the Mars, to join in the conversation, too. But first, we're going to hear from our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash. She's going off and talked to someone who's trying to make philosophy more a part of public life from a much different angle. She files this report. Mike Lee isn't a teacher, and he doesn't really consider himself a philosopher. But that hasn't stopped him from volunteering to teach philosophy in Los Angeles public schools. I sometimes start talking about just the word philosophy. I would tell them, oh, if you look at the word philosophy, it means, you know, from Greek, the love of wisdom. And then he might say, what is love? Or what makes a good student? Or, are video games real? Lee studies Japanese and music. He started LA's branch of the Socrates Cafe, an informal national network of adults who meet to discuss big life questions. Then he decided to bring these questions to nine and 10 year olds. One thing that's shocking is that even adults that I facilitate dialogues with 
they, they can't really form a very good or coherent or articulate moral position. Lee hopes that by starting philosophical debates early, kids might learn to think critically and form moral opinions. If it becomes a habit of theirs, then uh, it would probably change how they think about everything. For example, here's a clip of Mount Holyoke professor Tom Wartenberg explaining how philosophy can work in an elementary school classroom. It, you really see kids talking and thinking. When my baby cousin, he always <laughs> cries. He'd be talking baby language. I know what he says, and he'd be hungry, and I had to feed him. We don't teach them what philosophers have said about anything. We want the children themselves to be philosophizing. So without ever mentioning Plato or Socrates, instructors get kids to consider questions like, what is it to be brave? Can I be brave and scared at the same time? Again, Mike Lee. When they talk about celebrities, I would pose the question as, you know, what is fame? When they talk about video games, I would ask them about the real world versus the virtual world. You know, which one is better? Most of the kids say they'd rather live in the video game world where they can control their fate and never die. And one, one girl uh, said and raised her hand and said, well, but, but if you think about it, if you live in a video game world, you wouldn't learn real things. Ultimately, Lee believes if we all spent a little more time engaging in philosophical discussions, we might take our civic duties more seriously, and we might really consider the consequences of our actions. In short, we might build a better democracy. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Ash. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.